If uh, you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10. If you're visiting with us, we've been, uh, we're preaching through the book of Romans. Somebody asked me uh, when we started, and I really honestly can't remember. It's been a while. Um, it's been over a year, I think. Uh, so, but we are, we are uh, believe it or not, up to Romans chapter, uh, entering into Romans chapter 11. So looking at Romans 10 verse 16. Uh, through 11, verse 10. And uh, this section, Romans 9 through 11, uh, for those of you who may not know or if you are visiting with us, this is a section in which Paul is dealing with uh, God's salvation, redemption plan, uh, specifically as it relates to Jews and Gentiles, and and how how do they fit into God's plan of salvation. And so uh, Romans 9 through 11 deals with that, and we're right in in the heart of of that section. So Romans 10, starting at verse 16. And before I read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before your throne this morning. We come together, O Lord, under the authority of your word, and we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray, O oh Lord, that the same Spirit that anointed, that, that, gave, uh, that gave us these words of Scripture, the same Spirit that inspired them, would now illumine our hearts that we might understand them. O oh Lord, I pray that your word would be planted deep in us. I pray, O oh Lord, that it would bear fruit of abundant change and transformation that would be for our good and for your glory. So, Lord, speak to us now. And give us hearts that are willing and ready to receive what you would have us receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. So Paul, in the previous section, has just been talking about the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the good news of Jesus, and, and how um, he, said, he said at the end of verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, the good news of Jesus, the good news of salvation through faith in him. Now Paul goes on to say in verse 16, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? 
Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that, uh, that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. You may be seated. As we uh, make our way through the book of Romans, we, we wade a little deeper in this section into the, the problem of, of Israel's status before God. So Paul has said that not all Israel is true Israel, that not all physical descendants of Abraham are, are truly children of Abraham. And the sad and sobering reality then is that many of the Israelites do not stand in a saving relationship with God. In our text this morning, Paul continues to unravel this problem, and he shows us why it is that so many of the Israelites are not saved. Now, we're going to, it's a little bit technical up front, we're going to do some, some explanation, and just bear with me, we're going to get to how it applies to us as well. So as, as we look at the text this morning, we see really three main reasons for the problem of Israel's unsaved status. And the first reason is because they have not accepted the good news of Jesus. Very simple and straightforward. The, 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 Paul put it so simply in the previous section in chapter 10 when he said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Very, I mean, you can't get a, a more... A simple and, and straightforward gospel proclamation than that. If you, if you, conf if you uh, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in him and you're saved. But this is the one thing that many of the Israelites failed to do. As Paul says in verse 16, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. And that seems to be a pretty drastic understatement in Paul's context. Most, the, the, the vast majority of the Israelites did not accept the good news. And Paul shows us in verses 16 to 20 that the Israelites are really without excuse. He poses two questions that, that seal their indictment. He says, first, well, did they not hear the good news? And, and second, did they not understand the message of the good news? And Paul's answer to these questions is that they, they did, in fact, hear the good news, and they did, in fact, understand it. And Paul then draws on some Old Testament passages to prove his point, and he shows that it's not for lack of hearing, and it's not for lack of understanding that, that the, many of the Israelites are not saved. The problem is they have not accepted it. They have not believed it. Jesus Christ has come as their long-awaited and promised Messiah, and, and they have not received him in faith. That's the problem. 
And so in the end, they are culpable for their own unbelief. They are not saved because of their own disobedience. And again, Paul draws on the Old Testament to make his point. He quotes Isaiah 65, verse 2, where God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So this is the first reason why many of the Israelites are not saved. It is because of their own unbelief. They are disobedient and obstinate. They have rejected the good news of Jesus. So Paul is is stating very clearly that they are responsible for their own unsaved condition. Now the second reason Paul gives as to why they're not saved seems on the surface to to contradict the first. So the first one, Paul says it's it's their fault, right? They're, They're culpable, they're responsible for their own unbelief. The second reason, Paul says, is because God has hardened them. So Paul says in chapter 11, verse 7, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. And the passive voice that they were hardened indicates that it it was God who has done the hardening. It was God who prevented them from responding to his message of salvation. And and again, Paul draws on the Old Testament to make his point. He says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. It was God who gave them that spirit of not understanding. The quotation comes from uh, two passages, Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29, both of which speak of God sealing the Israelites in their unbelief. And the point that Paul is making is that God himself has hardened the Israelites. And so we see in this text that that familiar tension that we see often in in Romans and often throughout the rest of Scripture, that, that familiar tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Why is it that so many of the Israelites are not saved? Is it because of their own unbelief? Or is it because of God's sovereign hardening? Well, Paul says, without any apology, that it's both. And in faith, we must simply embrace that tension. The, the third reason that they are not saved is because of their false assurance of covenant security. They have grown complacent in their status as God's covenant people. They, they have taken his favor for granted. They, they think that they are near to God because they go through the motions of their covenant signs and ceremonies, but their hearts are far from him. And they have settled into a false assurance based on these outward signs and ceremonies. Now, we've seen this already in previous verses in Romans, but I think there's a hint of it here in verse 9 as well. Uh, And I say hint because you kind of got to do a little digging to to get there. But Paul is talking in verse 9 about how God has hardened the Israelites, and he uses the words of David in Psalm 69 to support his point. He says this, And David says in Psalm 69, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Now in the ancient Near East, covenants were often sealed over a meal around a table. And so uh, in some contexts, the table became a shorthand way of referring to the covenant. 
I think we see this in Psalm 23, that familiar psalm where the psalmist says in 23, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Well, what is, he, what, what is that all about? What is he saying? I think what he is saying is that God has entered into a covenant of protection with him in the presence of his enemies. Now, here in Romans 11, when Paul says of the Israelites, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them, I believe that he is saying that their covenant relationship with God has become a snare and a trap to them. They have been lulled into a false sense of security. They're clinging to all the outward signs and and ceremonies of the covenant, but their hearts are far away from God. And so the very covenant that was meant to be a blessing to them has become a snare. These are the reasons why many of the Israelites are not saved. They have not accepted the good news of Jesus. They have been hardened by God. And they have a false assurance of covenant security. And and this problem of God's covenant people missing out on salvation is not just a problem for Israel, is it? We see the same problem in the church today. Not everyone who professes to be a Christian is truly a Christian. Some who think that they are saved are not really saved. And and the same three reasons that explain the unsaved status of the Israelites still apply to us as professing Christians today. First, some are not saved because they have not truly accepted the good news of Jesus. They may say that they have. They profess to follow Jesus. They, they on the outward appearance, they, they would call themselves followers of Jesus, but their hearts are like the shallow soil in Jesus' parable of the soils. As soon as any kind of testing comes their way, the faith that they so quickly professed withers away, and we find that they never actually had a genuine faith at all. God is also still hardening hearts. Jesus himself said this is why he speaks in parables. He said to his disciples in in Luke chapter 8, he said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, and though hearing they may not understand. In other words, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that God has drawn you, my disciples, into a saving faith. He has given you ears to hear so that you will grasp the secrets of the kingdom through my parables. I will speak in parables and you will get what I'm talking about. You will will understand and you will grow in your faith through them. But for others, for those who have not been called and so have not accepted my message, God will harden their hearts through my parables. And my parables will seal their hardening, making them blind and deaf to the secrets of the kingdom. God still hardens people to the message of salvation. And there's a warning here then for for all who hear the gospel. If you you, uh, have rejected, if you've heard the message of the gospel and have rejected it, and if you keep on rejecting it, the time may come when God will seal you in your unbelief. And you will be permanently blinded to the glories of the gospel and the door will have been shut and you will, will not be able to receive it. So as Jesus says often throughout the gospels, take heed, listen, listen carefully to what I say. 
And like the Israelites, there are also some professing Christians who have been lulled into a false assurance of covenant security. Now, this is especially true, I think, for those of us who embrace covenant theology. And I, I love covenant theology. I'm a big fan of covenant theology. I think it makes, uh, makes the best sense of how we understand Scripture. But for those of us who are in it and have maybe grown up in it, I think we can easily re- come to rely on sort of the outward signs and ceremonies of, of the covenant, right? The, 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 the blessing of baptism can become a false ground of hope. And I will say that this applies not only for infant baptism, it applies to believer baptism as well. You can be baptized as a believer and, and just rely only on that outward sign without paying attention to the inward commitment. And that you're, not, you're now having a false assurance of, of covenant security through your, your baptism as a believer. But let me just speak a, min, a minute to, to infant baptism because that's we are covenant church after all. And... Uh, and so let me just say that if you have baptized your infants, you may, and, and I've seen this in, in other circles, not necessarily in our church, but in, in, in many circles in, in the Christian Reformed Church. If you, if you baptize your infants, you may come to a false assurance of their salvation based on that outward sign. Right? So they were baptized into the covenant community. They, they were marked as belonging to the community that belongs to God. Yes, absolutely. What a beautiful and, and true and real blessing that is. Have your, your babies to know that your babies are going to grow up under the umbrella of God's covenant blessings. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But this covenant that was meant to be a blessing can become a false assurance if, and here's the key point, if you stake your hope for salvation on the outward sign. Don't ever assume that someone is eternally secure because they have been baptized. Someone might say to me, you know, you know my, my kids, they're, they're not going to church. My, my kids, they're, they're not really bearing any fruit for the kingdom. I don't see evidence of, 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 of fruitful living. I don't see any evidence of them following Jesus. But I'm, I'm so glad that they were baptized. I'm just so thankful that I had them baptized as infants and I know be, because I know they belong to God. And he will not let them go. Well, that is really no different than the false assurance of the Israelites. There is no saving assurance in baptism itself. Maybe they will come around. So we, we, we keep discipling them and, and would urge you to keep discipling them and loving them and praying for them, but don't rest in a false assurance of covenant security. Understand that if your kids are, you know, have been baptized and are now living like unbelievers, it may well be because they are unbelievers. Don't cling to the outward signs and ceremonies of the covenant for assurance of salvation. The only thing that saves is very simple throughout, the, throughout Paul's letter to the Romans and throughout the Gospels. It is very simple. The only thing that saves is a true and living faith in Jesus Christ. Now, these sobering words of Paul about hardening and, and unbelief and The Israelites may have left his Jewish audience wondering if there was any hope for Israel. And they may leave us wondering if there's any hope for the church. And it's into this sobering reality of of hardening and unbelief that, that Paul speaks beautiful words of grace and hope. 
The unbelief of Israel is not the final word. Paul says that that God has graciously preserved a remnant of Israelites chosen by grace. He says, did God reject his people? By no means. There's that same expression we've encountered many times throughout Romans. Meganoito. Absolutely not. God forbid. May it never be. By no means. I am an Israelite myself. So now now Paul points to himself as an example of this. He points to uh, uh, what God has done in in his own life. And he says, I am an Israelite myself. A descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. God has not forsaken his people. He has not rejected the Israelites. He, he's drawn Paul into his saving embrace. And not only Paul, but he's done the same for so many others. In fact, Paul says the situation is much like it was in the days of Elijah. He says, don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Well, do you know what the scripture says about the passage, the passage that speaks of Elijah? He's talking about 1 Kings 18 and 19. Let me just, I, I love Old Testament narratives, so I'm just going to take a little bit of a moment here to refresh your memories if you're not familiar with that story from 1 Kings 18 and 19. We read in those chapters how Elijah went from this, from sort of the, the, this giddy triumph on the heights of Mount Carmel to crushing despair under a broom tree in the desert. Probably the two of the most, I mean, the two chapters in Scripture, I can't think of any chapters in Scripture that have a more glaring contrast than 1 Kings 18 and 19. God had called Elijah to turn the hearts of his people away from Baal worship and back to their God, and that's what he did. Beautifully and victoriously and triumphantly, in one of the most triumphant scenes in all of Scripture, Elijah was at the center of this fiery showdown at the top of Mount Carmel. Remember, remember how he had call the prophets of Baal and, you know, get your bowl and cut up your bowl and put it on the altar and cry out to your God, the gods, and see if, you see if fire will come down. And they're chanting and calling and, and morning fades into, into noon and noon turns into evening. They start slashing themselves to get any, you know, doing anything to get their gods to respond, but there was no response. And Elijah steps forward and says a simple prayer and fire falls from heaven. It's like a Western on steroids. It's just one of these great scenes in Scripture. And God was revealed as the true God. And the hearts of the people were turned and the false prophets were destroyed. Elijah was so exhilarated by this mountaintop experience that that he outran King Ahab in his chariot. He ran by foot and outran him almost 19 miles, almost a full marathon to Jezreel. Then we get to 1 Kings 19, and on the heels of this great triumph at Mount Carmel, there came a death threat from the queen, a solemn oath that she would do all in her power to kill Elijah. And so Elijah, who had boldly taunted the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, now found himself in the throes of despair. And he ran away in fear from this angry queen. In fact, he ran clear out of the kingdom of Israel. He ran over 100 miles deep into a desert in the southern part of Judah where he prayed that he would die under a broom tree. But an angel of the Lord met him under the broom tree and gave him food to eat and water to drink. 
And Elijah traveled from there for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. Anybody know what Mount Horeb is? It's another name for another Mount... Yeah, another name for Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. The very mountain where years before Moses had met with God and seen his glory. And there in a cave at Mount Horeb, the old prophet Elijah had it out with his God. And God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, last I, I knew, I thought I called you to fight the battle against Baal worship. And last I saw, that was taking place in Israel. I thought I called you to minister to my people in Israel. What are you doing here? And Elijah said, probably with more than just a hint of self-pity, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And just as he did with Moses, God allowed his presence to pass by Elijah on the mountain. And God revealed himself to Elijah, not in the fire, not in the storm, but in a gentle whisper. And God told them to go back the way he came. Go back to Israel. Go back into the arena, Elijah, to keep fighting the fight to which God has called you. And God gave him these words of, of gentle rebuke, but also deep assurance. God said to him, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. I, I love that exchange. It's one of my favorite exchanges in, in all of Scripture. Elijah cries out to God in despair, I'm the only one left. God, I'm, I'm all alone in this fight. And God says, yeah, no. There's 7,000 just like you. I'm God and, and you're not. I know things that you don't know. I see things that you don't see. You, you see yourself as standing all alone. I, I see 7,000 standing with you in their devotion to me. 7,000 that I have guarded and kept. 7,000 who have not bowed their knees to Baal. So get up off your little, you know, out of your little pity party and, and put on your big boy pants and go back into the battle and fight. Well, it was a reality check for Elijah. God is more faithful and gracious than he ever dared to dream. God will not let his people slip through his fingers. No matter how bad things get, God will graciously preserve a remnant of his people and carry forward his plan of redemption. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 11. Does Israel's unbelief mean that God has rejected his people? And Paul says, Paul says, no, but by no means. And in fact, he says in, uh, in verses 2 to 5, don't you know what scripture, sa what scripture says in the passage about Elijah and what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. What was true in Elijah's day, Paul says, 
is still true in our day. God is still preserving for himself a remnant chosen by grace. God has not rejected and forsaken the Israelites. God has a plan for them. And as chapter 11 unfolds, we're going to see more of what that plan is. God is holding on to them with an unyielding grip. And yeah, many of them will fall away. Many of them have fallen away. Many of them will fall away. And it is a tragic and a sad reality. But God is graciously and fiercely preserving a remnant. Just imagine for a moment how hard it must have been to be a Jewish Christian in Rome in Paul's day. If you remember from way back when we started this series and the introductory, one of the introductory messages that we, we saw how the Jews had been driven out of Rome in the year 49 AD by the Roman Emperor Claudius, drove them out. They're, they're banned from the city. Several years later, they come back in and what do they find? They find so many of their fellow Jews rejecting the good news of Jesus and the church is now run mainly by Gentiles. And they must have felt incredibly isolated and alone. They must have felt rejected and forsaken. And Paul encourages them that God has not rejected them, that he is still preserving a remnant just as he did in the days of Elijah. In fact, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that that 3,000 Jews believed on the day of Pentecost. And that that number grew to to 5,000 in just a matter of days. This is God graciously doing what he has done through that that pattern of, of, uh, of a remnant throughout all of Scripture. And this is him doing it again. Graciously preserving a remnant of the Israelites chosen by grace. So don't despair, Paul says. Take hope in the God of grace who holds all things in his hands. And this hope of a remnant chosen by grace, again, is not just for Israel. This hope of a remnant chosen by grace still applies to the church today. You know, we, I don't know about you, but for me, I I can feel at times like Elijah in a cave, in that cave at Mount Sinai. Or like the Jewish Christians in Paul's day, we we might feel isolated and alone. We might feel like we, like we alone are, are paddling against the current of culture while so many others are just rushing headlong past us down the stream. And we're all alone trying to strive and strain up the current. We see more and more professing Christians turning away from orthodox biblical belief and letting the current of culture just take them, take them into the cesspools of, of secularism and, and, and humanism and, and progressivism. And we might cry out like Elijah, Lord, your church is dying. It's just withering away. And everyone is rejecting your truth and, and turning away from your word. And God, I'm the only one left. And God says to us, like he said to Elijah, and like he said to the Jewish Christians in Paul's day, no, you're not alone. There are thousands who stand with you. Thousands who are striving with you against the current. Thousands who have not caved to the gods of the nations. My my church is in my hands and I will not let my people go. And there are so many more than you think. I have preserved a remnant chosen by grace, 
a remnant that I will keep to the end, a remnant that has not bowed their knees to Baal. Now, it's interesting, by the way, that, that, that Baal worship was really a blend of, of sexual immorality and materialism. If you, if, you, if you boil down Baal worship, that's what you have. These, these two sort of pillars at, at the heart of Baal worship was sexual immorality and, and materialism. The twin towers of corruption that still plague the Western world today. And so when God says he has reserved a remnant that has not bowed their knees to Baal, and by the way, the same things were twin towers of corruption in the Roman Empire as well. So when God says that he has reserved a remnant that has not bowed their knees to Baal, he is saying that he has preserved a remnant that has not caved to the prevailing pressure of the culture and its corruption in these areas of sexual immorality and materialism. And so these words of God are not just sort of buried in some irrelevant soil in ancient culture. They are pulsing with relevance for the church today. And so open your eyes to see, God says. See the faithful followers of Christ in America who who are teaching their kids to live by the word and to take up their cross and follow Jesus, no, no matter how much it costs them to do it. See the biblically grounded students who are shining like stars in the darkness of their classrooms and and schools and communities. See the missionaries who are risking their lives to take the living word into tribes and villages where death reigns. See the many Christians and churches who are enduring criticism and contempt for holding firmly to the word of life. Look around and know that you are not alone. There are thousands who stand with you. Thousands who have not bowed to the gods of this world. Thousands who are faithful. See them and be encouraged. For this is the hand of God preserving his remnant chosen by grace. They are held by his mighty hand and he will not let a single one of them slip through his fingers. And Jesus has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church and he who promised is faithful. He will hold us fast. He will sustain his church. He will keep us to the end by his grace. This is the encouragement that I felt a couple weeks ago at the Abide Convention. I know Pastor Ben mentioned this last week as well, but I'll, I'll echo his comments. The Abide Convention, uh, as uh, Pastor Ben mentioned, is a, a group in our denomination whose aim really simply stated is to uphold biblical truth in the midst of a warped and crooked generation. And specifically as it relates to human sexuality, but then beyond that as well into, into all areas of life. It's an expanding project. It can feel at times like we are all alone in the fight against the prevailing spirit of the age. And that convention was just another reminder that God is faithfully preserving his remnant. What an encouragement it was to be gathered with so many others who are in the fight with you. To see so many others who are held fast by God and holding firm to the truths of his word. Well, in the end, this, this remnant motif, there's this beautiful remnant motif that, that runs like a thread throughout Scripture. 
This remnant motif leads us to the cross. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. The blood that Christ shed was the blood of the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. The blood that effectively sealed his people chosen by grace. The blood of Christ then binds us all together and guarantees that the elect will obtain the salvation for which he died. And not a single one will be lost. All who have been washed in his blood will be saved. And so we can say in the words of that old hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose, lose all their guilty stains. So dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Let us behold the lamb whose blood was shed to secure for himself the whole remnant chosen by grace. And let us take hope that through faith in Christ, we are numbered among them and held in the unyielding grip of our God. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, Sovereign and almighty God, we praise you, O Lord, that your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we praise you, O Lord, that you have, by your sovereign grace and will and purpose, chosen to preserve for yourself a remnant, a people chosen by grace that you will guard and keep and hold to the very end. And people sealed for you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, if we have come to true faith in Christ, may we find deep hope and assurance in this biblical theme of a remnant chosen by grace and sealed with the precious blood of Christ. Lord, as we come before your throne in a space of silent prayer and preparation for communion, I pray that you would speak to us. If we have come to a true faith, speak to us this deep assurance. And if we have not, then I pray, O oh Lord, that by your spirit you would awaken us to a true and living faith. Lord, hear our silent prayers. Lord God, as we come forward for communion this morning, I pray that you would grow us in our faith. I pray that you would 
breathe into us a deep and living hope. And I pray, O oh Lord, that if we have come to a true faith in Christ, that you would give us a deep assurance that we belong to you, that we are numbered among that remnant chosen by grace, held firmly in your mighty hand. Oh, Lord, may you be glorified and may we be nourished through the body and the blood of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.